Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I'm going to be talking about David Ray Cam. So David Ray Cam lived a true nightmare. He was 36 when he came home from a game of basketball to find his wife and two children were brutally murdered in the garage of their family home. So his wife's name was Kimberly and she was 35 when she died. He had a son named Brad who was seven and a daughter named Jill who was only five. All this happened in Georgetown, Indiana. So before I jump into it, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. I love doing a true crime podcast because I love having people to talk about true crime with and that really enjoy it. If you haven't already, go give me a like a follow and a share um, on Facebook. That is going to be Storytime Slayer. And that's where I post all the related content that goes with each episode. I also have an Instagram story underscore time underscore Slayer. I have a YouTube that I'm really trying to really get active on. I'm so bad, but I'm going to do better. So go ahead and check that out. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. If you wouldn't mind, leave me a little five-star review on Apple Podcast, and I will get this show on the road. So on September 28th of 2000, David called 911 a little bit after 9.30 at night. He had just returned home from playing pickup basketball at a local church with 11 other men he was friends with. So like I said, David got home at about 9.30-ish, and he actually found his wife dead on the garage floor from a gunshot wound to the head. She was only wearing her underwear. When he looked in the back of the family SUV for his children, he actually found both of them and they had both been shot. Jill was slumped over. Her hair was wet with blood and hanging over her face. She'd been shot in the head and Brad was in the back seat. He was kind of slumped over the back of his seat as if he'd been shot while trying to flee further in the back of the vehicle to escape the shooter. David said that his son looked like he may still be alive and felt warm to the touch. So David pulled Brad out of the SUV and attempted CPR on him on the garage floor. Brad had been shot in the chest. So that is why David thought maybe he could potentially still be alive. However, once he started life-saving measures, he could see blood escaping through his chest. So. Kim is shot in the head execution style. She's lying on the garage floor when police arrive in just her underwear. Her shoes are neatly placed on the hood of her SUV and she has marks all on her hands and feet indicating that she'd had a really intense struggle with her attacker. Brad, the seven-year-old son, as I said, he was on the garage floor dead from a gunshot wound to the chest. Under him was a gray sweatshirt. It was a prison-issued sweater with two unknown individuals' DNA on it, by the way. Jill was still in the back seat of her car, deceased. She, too, had been shot in the head execution style, just like her mom. And it's just awful. Jill had suffered a very hard blow to her pelvis region. If I understand completely, there was an undeniable blunt force trauma that she sustained to the outside of her vagina. And it is said to have medically happened any time within the past 24 hours. However, this wound is visibly noticeable to the naked eye. It did not require a medical examination to notice. It was external, not internal. 
and it is believed to have happened at the time she was murdered, especially because her mom had just brought her home from an activity, a dance class, and everyone's like, no way would her mom take her to a dance class if she had that injury. Anyway, so David Cam's alibi is that he is playing pickup basketball at a nearby church. The 11 men he claimed to be playing basketball with confirm this, and they say David was there the entire time. The church is about a seven, eight minute drive each way from the house. Kim had taken Jill to dance class and Brad to swim practice that evening, and she should have arrived home a little bit after 7.30. When police asked around, Kim was last seen at the swim practice that she took Brad to at precisely 7.30, getting the kids all changed and ready to leave. Okay, so who are David and Kimberly Cam? David Cam was a former Indiana State Trooper who just within like four months before this crime resigned from his law enforcement career, which he had for over 10 years, to focus on his family business and make that his new career. The family business was waterproofing basements. On a really interesting side note, I just want to say that David was the officer who responded to the call when they found Shonda Scherer. Shonda was a beautiful 12-year-old girl who was brutally tortured and murdered by four teenage peers. I covered that story in an episode called Teenage Girls. So yeah, David Cam was actually the officer who arrived on scene and found Shonda's smoldering body for anybody who, who listened to that episode. So the Cams were your typical American family. David coached his kids' summer sports teams. Both kids attended a private school named Graceland Christian School. The Cams were members of the Georgetown Community Church, and they were like pretty involved members. The congregation had been founded by David's grandpa, and Kim was even the church treasurer. So all in all, there are going to be several theories introduced about this crime, at least three. And we're going to start with theory one. So the first theory is that police believe the victim's time of death was close to when they arrived on scene, which would be about 930. And that is what led police to believe that David killed his family after returning home from basketball at 930. Police said David shot his family, attempted to clean up the crime scene, and in a panic called 911. An autopsy, though, showed that the time of death was actually at 8 o'clock, not 9.30. So the police changed their timeline and decided that David must have slipped out of the basketball game, drove home, again, it's like a 7-8 minute drive one way, murdered his family, and then went back up to play basketball with nobody noticing or concerned about the blood on him. And that's probably what you're wondering. How did they come up with this theory? Before they could get confirmation on the time of death from a medical examination, the police just kind of theorized that the time of death must have been close to when they arrived on scene, which was literally by like 9.40 p.m. And what had happened was while they were on scene, like combing through the crime scene, this supposed blood expert chimed in. His name is Robert. And here's the deal. Robert is not a supposed blood expert, okay? He is not a blood expert at all or a crime scene photographer. What had happened was this particular police department and county liked to use a specific 
crime scene photographer who was a blood splatter expert and he just kind of helped with both right but this guy was not available so he phoned a friend aka Robert and asked if he could fill in for him taking photos of this crime scene Robert is a college professor so Robert's here snip snapping pictures away of this crime scene and what he sees is eight blood dots eight small splatters of blood on David Cam's shirt and he says oh my gosh that is high velocity impact splatter that man shot his family now let's talk about high velocity blood splatter so high velocity blood splatter is literally when you shoot a gun and the spray of blood from the impact leaves literally like a spray of blood on you okay like hundreds and hundreds of teeny tiny dots well David again he only had eight drops on his shirt we'll circle back to that okay the second piece of evidence that the police tried to hang their hat up on was David's phone records see David had said he was playing basketball from 7 to 9 30 and when the police checked David's phone records, they saw a phone call had been placed from the Cam family residence at 7.19 p.m. And this call, police were like, oh my gosh, look, he said he left at 7. There's a phone call here from 7.19. We know Kim wasn't home because she was taking the kids to activities. So obviously, David's lying about his timeline and all his friends are lying for him. So I do want to go ahead and clear this up because it's a little bit confusing. David Cam, and this was confirmed by the phone company, he lived somewhere where the time zones would sometimes get messed up depending on which tower your phone was going off of. And I wouldn't believe it if I literally didn't live somewhere in Alabama that this actually happened. We'd call it Valley or Opelika time because there was an hour time change that happened in the two towns. So literally, if you were on one side of this time change, you could be 10 minutes away from the other person and you may go by Opelika time, which is an hour behind, or you may go by Valley time, which is an hour ahead. So this is what happened with the phone records. And the phone company was able to confirm by the time zone the police was going by, this phone call was actually taken at 6.19 p.m. Let's point out that lying underneath Brad, the seven-year-old son, is a sweater that is issued to prison inmates. And the sweater has two DNA samples that are not a match to anybody in the Cam family home. The police run these DNA swabs through CODIS, but it did not match anybody in the system. Remember, CODIS is like a digital filing cabinet that holds violent offenders DNA in it. So they run these two DNAs off of the sweater at the crime scene. It's not a match. And they just are like, okay, you know, two unknown individuals DNA at a crime scene. We're just going to table that. What the police actually relied heavily on was David's character. See, David, he was not a loyal husband. David had a long history of infidelity. And the police played on this heavily in the media. And they built their case, especially in court, really hyping up like, look, this man was not loyal. He obviously killed them. 
Police questioned David Cam two times. And, you know, standard stuff. How is your marriage? Just kind of trying to fish like, is there any motive? Is there anybody else who could have done this? And the second time was the Sunday following the murders. And they actually arrest him and they charge him with three counts of first degree murder. Days following his arrest, the funeral service for his wife and children is held and he is actually not allowed to attend. He was escorted in handcuffs the night before to privately view the bodies, but that was it. I think this is likely because Kimberly's family thought David was guilty. They ate up the police's timeline and basically when Jill sustained the vaginal blunt force trauma, which again, most everybody agrees this had to have occurred at the time of the murders. Police actually theorized that David had done this to Jill earlier in the day in an effort to keep anyone from finding out David decided he was just going to murder his whole family. You get the gist, right? They are insinuating he is a child molester who murdered his entire family so nobody would find out. Partway through the investigation when they're preparing to go to trial because they arrested David so fast, the police actually found out from the medical examination that the family died closer to 8 o'clock, not at 9.30, which is literally smack dab in the middle of David playing his basketball game. No big deal. No big deal. It obviously, it all still makes sense to police. They say, well, obviously David left the basketball game and either the 11 men didn't notice he left or all 11 of these men slash church members are lying for him so he can cover up murdering his family. Whatever. So trial one starts spring of 2002. Of course, the issue of high velocity blood splatter comes up. The prosecution claims to have a blood splatter expert. He He's not the expert that they thought he was. Defense experts theorized the blood on David's shirt was actually from his daughter's hair and not high velocity blood splatter from a gunshot. Remember, Jill died from a gunshot wound to the head, so her hair was drenched in blood when David reached over her to grab Brad. The defense team actually brought a wig into the courtroom and showed how by running shirts over the wig with fake blood, it would produce a pattern very similar to the one found on David's shirt the night his family was shot. And the blood stains were, seriously, it is more likely that they were from reaching over Jill to grab Brad than they were from high velocity gun splatter because even both experts, I'm putting air quotes around the prosecution's experts, both of them said, no, I've actually never heard or seen such little amount of blood splatter from a high velocity gun shot. Anyway, remember when I said police relied heavily on David's character to build their case? Well, this judge allowed testimony of a dozen women David had extramarital affairs with or proposition to have sex with. In court, a dozen women. That is humiliating. Next, the issue of life insurance money came up as well. Apparently, David stood to gain about $150,000 from a policy he and his wife had bought together in Florida using David's brother's address because David's brother lived in Florida. He and Kim purchased it together six weeks before her death, but it wasn't like David did the claims on his own. The insurance salesman testified that the couple came in to purchase the policies together and set up some other retirement funds. They had 
other life insurance policies that they were going to cancel after this one went into effect. And it's true that her old policy actually had more insurance on her and the children than this new one did. So I know the timing sounds suspicious, but it was less suspicious when you take into account the family wasn't out of nowhere getting life insurance. They'd been carriers of life insurance for years. Now, I hate to even bring this up, but there is the topic of Jill's blunt force vaginal trauma. It is said to be consistent with possible molestation, according to the prosecution's expert. But according to the defense's expert, Jill's hymen was still intact. And medically, technically, the incident could have happened anytime within the last 24 hours. But... Again, it's very unlikely that Kim would have taken Jill anywhere with this severe of an injury if she had sustained it before her murder. Kimberly's best friend testified as well. Her name is Marcy McLeod. McLeod? McLeod? I don't know. Marcy said that she and Kim spoke at least monthly. And in her last conversation weeks before Kim died, all Marcy was really allowed to say is that the tone of their conversation was worrisome. I say that's all Marcy was allowed to say because David's lawyer objected his ass off and Marcy was barely allowed to even speak in court. And honestly, I think that would probably be more damning than to whatever Marcy was actually going to say. To not let them speak, everyone's like, but what were they going to say? What were they going to say? Just let the hussy talk. I'm 99% sure Kim's friends and family all alluded to the fact that they think David could have killed his entire family because he was a womanizer and they genuinely thought, oh, he may have been molesting Jill. That does sound like a motive. I was shocked to read that David took the stand in his own defense. But okay, regardless of all that, the 11 men corroborating David's alibi that there's DNA belonging to two unidentified people at the crime scene, a prison issued sweater, the telephone record was disproven, the forensic evidence is obviously trash, David was still found guilty and sentenced to 195 years in prison. So August 2004, his conviction is actually overturned by the Indiana Court of Appeals because they deemed that the jury had been tainted by the testimony of the 12 women that David had sexual affairs with or propositioned for sex. The big issue with that is the prosecutor never connected the relationships or David's streak of infidelity to the murders of his wife and children. It didn't show a motive. It just showed that he was a shitty husband. But nonetheless, this is where this story really starts heating up is November 2004. The state refiled charges against David Camp before the second trial started in 2006. David Camp's defense team asked that the DNA found at the crime scene belonging to the two unknown people be ran in CODIS again. It's claimed by David's defense team that they actually had to get a court order to have the DNA re ran but regardless the dna is ran and it comes back as a match to a man named charles bonnet from new albany charles bonnet was a convicted felon for armed robberies against women typically with the intent to steal the women's 
shoes. Apparently, Charles had a shoe fetish. Remember, Kim's shoes had been removed and neatly placed onto the hood of her SUV, which is pretty out of place for such a messy crime scene. Plus, the bruising and abrasions on Kim's feet does make it seem as if she was being attacked for her shoes by a madman with a foot fetish. Of course, Charles Bonet is like, I didn't kill no family. And when the police gave him a polygraph, though, he failed. And when asked how his sweatshirt got at the crime scene, he said, I have no idea, and said that he donated the sweater. So David could have gotten it anywhere. The second DNA sample found on the sweater belonged to Charles' girlfriend, Mala Singh Mattingly. Mottingly. Mattingly. I don't know. But prosecutors decide it still seems more plausible that David snuck in and out of pickup basketball to kill his wife and kids than if Charles had done it. I don't know in whose mind that makes sense. But okay, Charles was only convicted for stalking and attacking women for their shoes, a crime that is proven to escalate with time. Go look at who Jerry Brudos is. I covered him in an episode. He was a man who stalked women for their shoes and then over time progressed to killing them. Anyway. Two weeks after Charles's DNA comes back as a hit and he is questioned, the police decided that they need to re-examine all their evidence. They take another look at the family Bronco, that's the SUV that Kimberly had, and they actually find a palm print on the back of it that belongs to Charles. So obviously they arrest him, you know, his DNA's at the crime scene, his palm print's at the crime scene, and when Charles Bonet is arrested... Guess who he asks for as his legal representative? The prosecutor in David Cam's first trial, Mr. Stan Faith. Of course, Stan refused Charles's case when he was arrested this second time because it was a conflict of interest seeing how he prosecuted David Cam. I want to point something out. Had the police ran the DNA through CODIS the first time like they claimed they did, Charles would have popped up because he was already in the system. I mean, seriously. So let's unpack this just a little bit further. Not anybody in law enforcement can run somebody's DNA through CODIS that I know of, at least in Indiana. Stan Faith is believed to have ran the DNA matches himself through CODIS and gotten a hit for Charles Bonet, who he was already representing or represented in the past for attacking women for their shoes. And a lot of people think that he covered that up because, like I said, for one, Charles Bonet was a previous client of his. For two, he'd already built up the David Cam case in the media and with his colleagues. Plus, David Cam used to be an Indiana trooper. I wonder if there's any type of animosity between him and his former colleagues to where they maybe built this case against him. I don't know. Lots of ideas out there. So what I do know, though, is that after Charles is arrested, he gives several conflicting stories about what happened that September night. Finally, he settles on this. He said that he was lured to David's home by David because David wanted to buy a gun from Charles. Charles said that he got to David's home at 7 p.m. 
Um, on a side note, if you were wanting any type of receipt to prove that Charles and David had corroborated with each other as to like what time and date and where David lived, there's none of that because Charles said that they made these plans when they would just casually run into each other at normal places by coincidence, like Walmart, gas stations, et cetera, et cetera. There was no exchanging of phone numbers, text messages, emails, anything like that. This is just ridiculous. So when Charles gets to David's house, David meets him out front to buy the gun. The gun was wrapped in Charles's prison sweatshirt. It was the same sweatshirt that is found at the scene of the crime when Charles and his girlfriend's DNA on it. Within seconds of Charles giving David the gun, Kim arrived to the house in her Bronco and then She pulls into the garage and David follows her. That's when Charles hears three gunshots ring out. Then suddenly David emerges from the garage with the weapon pointed at Charles. David tries to shoot Charles and say, you did this. But either the gun misfired or it ran out of ammunition. Instead of getting in his car or running away, Charles then starts chasing David. David made it inside the house and locked the garage door. Charles tripped and fell over Kim's shoes, and that is why he picked them up and neatly placed them on the hood of Kim's Bronco. It had nothing to do with his shoe fetish. After getting up and putting the shoes on the hood of the Bronco, Charles leaned against the vehicle and looked in the back seat where he saw Brad and Jill. He insists that is all he did. He did not touch the victims. He did not touch anything else, and he got the hell out of there. So the coroner report says that the victim's time of death is 8 p.m. And Charles is trying to say all this happened seconds after 7 p.m. Remember, Kim didn't even leave the pool till like 7.30. When police spoke with Charles's girlfriend, she said that particular night, Charles did not come home till really late, well after midnight. He was sweaty. He was short of breath, like he'd done something really exhilarating or intense. She didn't know what was wrong with him. So how did the police and prosecutors handle all this new wave of information leading up to their second trial? Uh, Hello, they charged David and Charles as co-conspirators in separate trials. So Charles' trial was first. He stuck to his story. He maintains that this is the truth. He was lured to David's house by David so David could frame Charles Bonet for murder. And Charles Bonet claims his innocence to this day. He says he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. So Charles is sentenced to 225 years in prison. David's trial begins January 17th of 2006. The new prosecutor on this case with Keith Henderson. Unlike in the first trial, extramarital affairs were inadmissible, but everything else was pretty much the same. Plus Charles saying he was lured to the home to be framed. The prosecution argued that David had been molesting his daughter. Charles agreed to testify that he'd been set up by David and was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And it all worked, guys. David was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. David appealed this conviction, saying that there was no evidence to indicate that he'd been molesting his daughter, nor was there indisputable evidence to link him to Jill's injury. And, of course, David wins this appeal also. The prosecution pressed again, though. 
again. The prosecution pressed charges on him a third time. And this time the prosecution really honed in on the life insurance policy that Kim and David purchased. Plus, Charles Bonet actually testifies against David again using the same convenient story. But there's new evidence tested and submitted by the defense this time. See, there was touch DNA left at the scene of the crime in several places that are a positive match for Charles Bonet. Touch DNA is literally DNA that you leave behind when you touch something. So they found this touch DNA that belonged to Charles Bonet on Kim's panties, the arm of her shirt, on the fingernail that broke off of her, on the shirt of the little girl Jill. And remember, Charles Bonet insisted he only touched Kim's shoes and the Bronco on the back side of it to lean in and look. Here's the thing, though. The touch DNA was not entered until after the prosecution had already made its case. So it was like a surprise twist that the defense brought. Once the touch DNA is entered, prosecutors changed their theory of the crime. So we're at the end of the third trial and the state's theory done changed. This is insane, y'all. So by the way, this new theory would be the state's fourth theory of this crime. And the theory is that Charles Bonet is in fact more culpable of the crime than he wants to admit. So the prosecution asks the presiding judge if he would allow the jury a special instruction. The special instruction was that the jury could find David Cam guilty if they in any way thought that David aided and abetted Charles during these murders. So basically, if the jury thought in any way, shape or form, David Cam did lure Charles to his home or make some kind of arrangement with Charles to kill his family, they could just go ahead and find him guilty, even if they don't really have the evidence. Like if the jury just maybe thinks that a little bit, they can just go ahead and just, woo, guilty. This is completely unjust and no way would a judge rule in favor of this. But Judge Jonathan Dart actually ruled in favor of this special instruction to the jury, which is insane. However, on October 24th, 2013, David Cam was found not guilty of all charges. A lot of people have mixed emotions about this case. Many believe David Cam is guilty and should not be a free man. I bet David is a real piece of work. And I can tell juries must really hate him. He must not be a super likable guy. But I definitely don't think he killed his wife and kids. I did find a little bit more information about this case. So from everything I've seen and read about this trial, Kim's family genuinely thought that David was guilty of this crime. They filed six civil lawsuits against him. One was for wrongful death, and the other five had to do with the insurance and financial settlements. David and Cam had a policy that covered him, Kim, and both their children. However, I don't think Kimberly's family won any of their civil cases, especially because I know for sure they didn't win the wrongful death case, and a lot of the other civil cases were kind of riding on that. Um... David, though, was awarded over $4.6 million from various settlements relating to his wrongful conviction and a $450,000 settlement specifically from the Floyd County. Woo, that's right, y'all. So there's a book out about this case called One Deadly Night. I have not read it. I thought about reading it. It's got great reviews and probably a treasure trove of information about this case. 
Anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you later. Bye.